You want to turn with me in your copy of Scripture to John chapter 6. If I haven't said it before, this is one of my favorite chapters in the Scriptures. There's so much in here, and the Lord really used this chapter early in my Christian walk to really correct a lot of my thinking about God and spirituality and, and what is the essence of being a Christian and, and faith in Christ. And, and so I pray the Lord will do that this morning through, through the preaching of his word. And so we come, as Daryl sort of alluded to, he said, I'm going to try to make it clear. And that's my goal is to try to make this passage clear. But you'll, you'll see as we read it that there's a lot of... Um, there's a lot of difficulty in this passage. But before we get to our text this morning, what we've seen throughout this whole chapter, in John chapter 6, we've seen this miraculous feeding of the 5,000, this multiplying of the loaves and the fish to feed this great multitude, thousands, maybe 10,000. And like other chapters in John, this miracle is not the point it's, it's a sign, is what John calls these signs, seven signs that Jesus does. They're meant to point us, not to the thing itself, but to Christ and his person and his work. And so Jesus, this whole time, has used this miraculous event, and even the confusion around this event, to point the people to their great need. And not their great physical need, that's what they want. They want physical bread, they want physical their hunger to be satisfied, but he points them to their great spiritual need, the thing above their physical need. And so we've seen in this chapter the crowds are hungry, you know, we want more bread, or what other signs do you have to do? And so they're, in a sense, these crowds are hungry, hungry, but Jesus didn't come mainly to give them physical bread. He didn't come mainly to do these miracles just to fill up their, their bellies. He didn't come to just provide physical bread for these people. And he didn't even come just to be a good example, right, of how to, how to feed people that are in need or anything like that. That's not mainly the reason Jesus came or the reason he, did, he performed this sign. He came to be bread. <laughs> he came to be the bread of life. And so you and I, as we've seen hopefully through this chapter, we need this bread. <laughs> we don't need just physical bread from Kroger or maybe you homemade sourdough or whatever. <laughs> we don't need that kind of bread mainly. We need Christ. We need him. And that's what he's come to show us. And we're in desperate need of this bread. Because everything in the world tells us that we're hungry, that we're not satisfied. That's the whole point of, look at your phone for more than five minutes. There's ads telling you what you need. You need the new phone. You need this new thing. You need this piece of furniture. You need, you know, this new book for me. <laughs> Too close to home. Right? That we're not going to be satisfied. That we need this thing and that's going to fill something in us. And all of that stuff, all that physical stuff, it has great promises, right, of making us happy, of fulfilling us, and it's promises that those things can't keep. And so what we're going to see in this passage is that Jesus is going to keep hammering this point home. He's just going to take a stake and just keep driving home this point that he is the one that can truly satisfy and even though confusion has risen up and it will continue to rise up in our passage today, far from moving to 
these people's felt needs to the things that they really want, right? They want more bread. Far from moving to that, Jesus only intensifies his language. He only doubles down on what he's trying to show them and what he's trying to show us. And that is our absolute need to eat of this bread of life, to drink of him alone, that it's essential, it's necessary. It's not an option, it's not, it's not up for debate, it's not um, a secondary thing. It's essential, and that for those that do, for those that eat of this bread, for those that eat and drink of this Christ, there's life. There's life eternal, forgiveness of sins, peace with God, union with him, and everlasting salvation found in him alone. So I'll read our passage this morning, I'll pray for us, and then we'll, we'll look at God's word. Beginning in verse 52, this is the word of the Lord. The Jews then disputed among themselves, saying, How can this man give us his flesh to eat? So the Jews said to them, Sorry. So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. As the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so whoever feeds on me, he also will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven, not like the bread that the fathers ate and died. Whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. And Jesus said these things in the synagogue as he taught at Capernaum. Let's pray. Lord, we come before you this morning in great need, in great need. And even though we might not be fully aware, Lord, we pray this morning that you would reveal to us our great need, that we who are sinners, who are enemies of you, we need forgiveness, we need a reconciliation, we need a perfect righteousness. We need forgiveness. We need atonement. We need peace with you, Lord. That's what everyone in the world is searching after is, is peace with their creator and their maker. And this morning, Lord, we see the answer to all these questions. Life's deepest questions are found in Christ alone this morning. And so we pray, Lord, that as we look at your word, as we study this passage, as we as we see what's being proclaimed through these words of Holy Scripture, we pray, Lord, that you would remove the, the shells, the scales from our eyes, that you would remove the veil from our hearts, that we would see this morning clearly that we are without hope unless we eat and drink and feed on Christ this morning. So help us to do that. We are helpless without your Spirit quickening us, enlivening our hearts, opening our eyes. We pray that you would do this this morning. We rely on you, and 
And we ask these things in your son's name. Amen. Amen. So we have a simple outline this morning if you want to follow along in your handout. We're going to talk about three things. We'll talk about the necessity of feeding on Christ alone. We'll talk about the means by which we feed on Christ. And finally, we'll look at the benefits of feeding on Christ. So we'll look at the necessity, the means, and the benefits. So as we come to this passage, we find out at the end of our text that these, all these events are actually happening at the synagogue. So we see back in verse 41 that these Jews are introduced, and this is where a lot of people believe there's sort of a change in setting. Now, John doesn't really draw attention to that. The narrative just kind of flows from verse 40 to verse 41, but many believe that right there is maybe where Jesus, with these crowds and some of these Jews accompanying him to the synagogue at Capernaum, and where he does more teaching about who he is and what he came to do. And so this whole context, this dispute among the Jews is happening at the synagogue with these religious leaders of the day. And there's confusion, we see there in verse 52, that these people had missed the spiritual significance of the words of Jesus. And this is in reference back to verse 51, where Jesus says he's the living bread, that he's come down from heaven, and anyone that eats of this bread will live forever, and this bread that he gives is his flesh. And so there's confusion about this when we read this in verse 52. It says the Jews disputed among themselves and they said, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? <laughs> right? And maybe you thought that yourself last week or maybe even this week as we're reading this passage. Whoa, what is, what is he talking about? And so these Jews, these religious leaders had missed the spiritual significance of our Lord's words. And even though they've heard him perfectly, they didn't confuse what he said. They didn't twist it. They are misunderstanding. And this is a very common theme in John's gospel. We can't forget where we've gone before. John chapter 3, Nicodemus comes to Jesus by night and he says, all these great things, Jesus, you're a great teacher. You've done miraculous signs. And Jesus says, you must be born again. And he says, can I, be, can I go back into my mother's womb? Right? He misses the spiritual significance of what Jesus is saying, and he confuses it with the physical and the natural. Same thing happens in John chapter 4. Jesus comes to the woman at the well, and he says, I have water, I have living water, and if you drink of this, you'll never be thirsty. And she says, how? You don't even have a bucket. You can't go into the well and pull up more water. And so we see confusion again. Because there's a focus on the physical, on the natural, and there's a missing of the spiritual significance of what Jesus is saying. Same thing is happening here in John chapter 6. And so we have to understand something about the way our, our Lord uses words and metaphors and analogies and even in other gospels, parables or hyperbole. He uses these literary devices to explain things, to explain meaning. Right? I was talking to my kids the other night. <laughs> they were eating a bunch of cheese, and I said, if you eat any more of that, you're going to turn into cheese. And my daughter said, no! <laughs> I don't want any more. <laughs> right? So, it's, <laughs> I didn't literally mean she's going to turn into cheese. Unless, I don't, unless we're living in Willy Wonka land or something, right? So, 
We use these devices all the time, metaphors, analogies, hyperbole, you're going to turn into cheese, to communicate things. We're not being literal in our speech, and the same thing is happening here with Jesus. When he uses these words, he's using them to communicate something, meaning. And this is a common theme in John's Gospel, this focus on the physical and the natural and missing the intended words of our Lord. And what's so puzzling about this passage is where we might expect Jesus to dumb down his language, to explain himself, maybe make it less strange, maybe use a different illustration, make it more palatable to these people. Far from doing this, our Lord intensifies his language. Far from dumbing down what he says, he doubles down what he says. And in the words of A.W. Pink, he says this, He in no degree explains away what seems strange, absurd, or unintelligible, for that would have been worse than lost on them in their unbelief. On the contrary, he becomes more paradoxical, paradoxical, more mysterious, more difficult to understand. That's hard for us to hear, I think. Jesus, isn't he supposed to explain to these people what he means? Isn't he supposed to dumb it down so they can understand? Our Lord speaks in parables. Our Lord speaks in words that are difficult to understand sometimes. But I think as we'll see, this is not our Lord being obscure for the sake of being obscure. It's actually showing them their unbelief. He's been nothing but clear in John's Gospel what he means, and yet they do not see or understand. And so we move move first in verse 53 to the necessity of what Christ will talk about, this eating and drinking of him. And he says in verse 53, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Our Lord here, where he was maybe before being sort of of not as explicit, is here being very explicit. He's amplifying what he said before. Where before he kind of made these connections, he said, I'm the bread that's come down, and this bread is my flesh. It's sort of indirect. Here he's saying, eat my flesh and drink my blood. (laughs) Whoa. And if if we're honest with the scriptures, we sort of have to pause here and be like, did he just say that? Did he just say what I think he said? Unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. And so before we get into this meaning, we see here in the language, our Lord is not only intensifying the language and the imagery that he's speaking here, he's also pressing in on the necessity of this. The necessity of this eating and drinking. Whatever it means to eat of his flesh and drink his blood, we can say with confidence that it's necessary. It's not optional. It's not secondary. It's not sort of a take it or leave it thing that these these crowds or these Jews can, can sort of take part and leave part. It's essential. It's vital. It's necessary. He says in verse 53, unless you do this. Unless you eat 
the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Why? Why is Jesus able to say this? Because apart from this eating and this drinking, Jesus is saying there's no life. There's no spiritual life. There's no peace with God. There's no reconciliation. There's only spiritual death, corruption, and condemnation. That the rest of the scriptures are clear, as Paul will say in 1 Corinthians 15. In Adam all die. In Adam all die. This is a reference back to the garden, Genesis chapter 3, right? Adam was this figure. He was supposed to image God. He was supposed to follow his law. He was supposed to serve and glorify him. And this was, we can say, a covenant of works where he was supposed to work. He was supposed to obey God. And then by working, he would obtain eternal life. But as with all covenants, there's both blessing and there's curse, right? The blessing of this covenant was eternal life with God, immutability, unchanging eternal life with Him. But the curse, as we know, is death. What does God say to Adam in the garden? If you eat of this, you will surely die. This can be more literally translated, in dying you shall die. <laughs> in dying you shall die. He's emphasizing that the curse of disobeying God is death. Not just physical death, but spiritual, eternal death. And as we read this morning in Psalm 51, we are, you and I are born in sin. In sin did my mother conceive me. That you and I have a problem. That not only has Adam's sin been imputed to us, but we ourselves are sinners. We ourselves are sinners. How does that saying go? We're not sinners because we sin. We sin because we are sinners. We are born sinners. And that's what David is talking about there in Psalm 51. And that's what, that's what Christ is talking about here. That apart from him, apart from this eating and drinking, there's no life. So we have a twofold problem. Not only... Do we have real sin that separates us from God? Just like in the garden, Adam and Eve are separated from communion and peace with God. But no matter how hard we try, our works, no matter how good we think they might be, cannot earn us eternal life. No matter how good our works may be, they cannot earn us eternal life. And so Jesus here is pointing these people to the absolute necessity of eating and drinking. That apart from this, there's no life. And what he's really saying is, you need life. <laughs> you don't have life, Jews. You don't have life, crowd. Yes, I've given you physical bread, but you don't have true, spiritual, eternal life. And there's only one way you're going to get this, and it's by eating the flesh of the Son of Man and drinking His blood. So now we move to the means by which this feeding occurs. The means by which this eating and drinking occurs. And he says in verse 54, Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life. 
What's amazing here in the Greek is that this word feeds there, if you look at verse 54, is actually, can actually be translated gnaws or chews. He actually is intensifying the language. It's not just whoever eats his flesh, it's whoever gnaws and chews. It's like, what? What is he, what is he saying here? And he's intensifying this language even more. And so we see here several things. We see the certainty of this thing. It's a sure thing. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life and I will raise him up. It's a sure thing. Jesus is saying, whoever does this will get this. But secondly, we see this means by which these things happen. This eternal life is gained. This resurrection from the dead is gained. This is the means by which we feed and drink of him. And so maybe there's still some confusion in your mind. Kendall, what are you talking about? What is it to eat and drink of Christ? What is he saying? These words are strange. They're foreign. Do we take them literally? How do we understand these things? And luckily, one of the principles of understanding the scripture is using the clear parts of scripture to interpret the unclear parts of scripture. And if you look at verse 40, if you look at verse 40, we'll see the clarity at which these things can be understood. What does verse 40 say? For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in Him should have eternal life, and I will raise Him up on the last day. These words should sound very familiar because they are almost identical to what Jesus says in verse 54. Except the first two things have been changed. So in verse 40, it's whoever looks on the Son and whoever believes in Him has eternal life and is raised on the last day. What's it say in verse 54? Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has the same things, eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. So Jesus here is not describing some different secondary thing. Like, not only do you need to believe in me, you also need to do this other thing, which is eat and drink me. He's using a literary device, a metaphor, to, he's using different language to describe the same thing. He's describing the nature of this believing, of this looking on the sun. It looks like eating and drinking of him. Or we could say it like this. To eat and drink of Christ is to believe, to look on the sun. To come to him, as he said in the rest of John chapter 6, to have faith, to believe in him, to trust in him for everything we need for life and salvation. To embrace him as the only one that can save. To be connected to him, to ingest him, to live and breathe and to... Everything in us is this. And so this is the means by which we feed on Christ. It's faith. It's faith and faith alone. That's what Jesus is pointing these people to. That it's by faith in the person and work of Christ alone that we eat and drink of him. And that's what our catechism question said this morning. It's to embrace Christ with a believing heart. This is what it means to eat and drink of him. So this is the means. But Jesus here is not only talking about the means by which we eat and drink of him, but he's pointing us to the saving blessings and the benefits that come from eating and drinking. 
And this moves us to our third and final point, the benefits of feeding on Christ. The benefits of feeding on Christ. Jesus here describes several things. He describes eternal life. He describes resurrection from the dead on the last day. He describes abiding in him, a life that comes from the Father, that just as the Father has given me life, so I will live because of you live because of me. And so Jesus here is describing these manifold blessings, these saving blessings of being of feeding and drinking on Christ. And how we can summarize this is the benefits of feeding and drinking on Christ are union with him. And in union with Christ, we receive all the benefits that he has won. So if we sort of step back for a second, these words are not new in John chapter 6. He's talked before about those that feed of me, this bread of life, will get eternal life. They'll get resurrection on the last day. There's a certainty. He said, I'm not going to lose any. The Father is going to draw them. I'm going to save them. They'll all be taught by God. They'll come to me. I'll raise them up on the last day, and they'll have eternal life. And he's sure of these things. There's no doubt in Jesus' mind what's going to happen. And if we're honest for a second, we can step back and we can say, how can Jesus be sure? How can Jesus be sure here? How can he be certain? How can he know that whoever feeds on him and drinks of him will have eternal life and will be raised on the last day? How does he know some sin is not going to keep his people from being resurrected on the last day? How does he know that some transgression, some thing is not going to keep them from having eternal life? And the reason is, is because of what faith does. What faith does, what this eating and drinking of Christ does. And he says there in verse 56 that whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me abides in me. You could even say dwells in me. And this is the language of being united to Christ and all his saving benefits. This is to be united to Christ in all his saving benefits. The reason Jesus knows that for all those that have faith in him, that come to him, will have eternal life, will be raised on the last day, the reason he knows is not because he sees how they're going to persevere. It's not because he sees that they're going to be a good person and they're going to make it to the end. It's because they've been united to him in his life, in his death, and in his resurrection. And he's certain of this. He's absolutely certain of it. And it's not because our life is going to be perfect from here on out or because we're going to be able to do what he really calls us to do. It's because of him. That this union with Christ, as the reformers called it, this union with Christ is where all our saving benefits come from. That Christ, in his life and his death and his resurrection, he accomplished redemption. He didn't just go to the cross and raise from the dead as a, an example of what you and I should do. He accomplished something, actually. And so the question we have to ask ourselves, right? Many of us know Jesus went to the cross. He raised from the dead. He's at the right hand of the Father. The question that we need to ask is how do those benefits that Jesus won, how do they get to us 2,000 years later? 
2,000 years later, how do the benefits that Christ won, how do they get to us? And the answer is by union with Him. What does Paul say in Galatians 2? I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. This is language of union. What's, what's it say in Romans 6? That in baptism we've been buried with Christ. There's our burial with Him. And then we see in other places in Scripture that if, you, if anyone is, is in Christ, he is a new creation. This is language of union with Christ and all his benefits. That to be in Christ by faith is to be united to him. That his death is our death. His life is counted as our life. His resurrection as the first fruits of our resurrection. And this is what he is able to do because he's the second Adam. He's the one that did Adam, everything Adam failed to do. And he did it better and not only that, but he suffers the punishment for what the first Adam and what, for what we do. So this is what Jesus is speaking of here. This is the benefits of feeding on Christ, of being united to him, is eternal life, resurrection from the dead. Everything that Christ accomplished is ours by means of eating and drinking of him by faith. And he says, my flesh is true food and my blood is true drink. And whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me. And so Jesus here is pointing these people, these stubborn, complaining, grumbling people, to nothing less than their need to be united to him and their saving, the saving communion they need to have with him on the last day. That he alone is true drink and true food. And that all other bread, all other things can't satisfy. They're going to perish. They're going to pass away. That sin promises satisfaction. It promises that it's going to satisfy. You and I know this. What happens when sin rises up in us? It says, just do that thing. Just look at that thing. Just buy that thing. Just do that thing. And it'll bring satisfaction. And sometimes for the moment, it sort of does. It sort of this endorphin rush, right? We, we sort of say, yes, it, but it fades, it perishes, it doesn't last. And ultimately, our sin doesn't bring life, it brings death. It brings death. It separates us from God. It causes, it calluses our heart. It causes us to value other things above our Creator. And even if it's not sin in our lives, sometimes it's good things, right? Family, friends, Food, all these things are not bad in and of themselves. But when we look for our satisfaction in those things alone, in eating and drinking of the pleasures of this world, they don't, they don't satisfy. They don't fully satisfy us in a lasting and enduring way. And so we see this morning the essential nature of what Jesus is saying here. That we need to eat and drink of him. Unless you do this, unless you eat and drink of me, there's no life in you. There's no third way here. Jesus is not describing some third or middle way. There's no partial eating. There's no partial drinking of him. There's no taking the parts that we like and leaving the parts that we don't like. There's no 
saying, well, I like the love part of Jesus, or I like the life part, the eternal life part, but I don't like the sin part. I don't like the part where I have to turn from my sin or repent. I don't like that part. We need the whole Christ. We need the whole Christ, and we need all of him. We see that there are those that feed on him and those that don't. There are those that come to him and have life, and there are those that don't. And we see, for us this morning, our only hope is Christ. Our only hope is Christ, is to be united to him and all his benefits. That we are just like these people in this passage. We're sinners, we're spiritually blind, <laughs> we're enemies of God, we're dead in our sins, we're under the wrath of God, as we read in Romans 5. And yet, in God's mercy and his love, he sent his son. He sent one who's taken on flesh to suffer, to accomplish redemption, and that by believing and trusting in Him alone, our sin is placed on Him, and His righteousness is given to us. This is our only hope this morning. There's no other hope for the believer. One theologian put it like this, We must understand that as long as Christ remains outside of us, and we are separated from him, all that he has suffered and done for salvation remains utterly useless and of no value to us. But we can say, if we are united to him, if we are the body of Christ, if we are in him, we have all we need for salvation. And as our confession and catechism are so clear, what we need is justification. We need sanctification. We need adoption. We need assurance of God's love. We need peace with God. We need joy in the Holy Spirit. We need perseverance to the end. And these are all in Christ. They're not found in some other secondary way. We don't get assurance or peace by doing something else other than beholding and being united to Christ. That salvation is not found in our experience, these mystical understandings or higher knowledge. It's not found in our human intellect or will, our ability to reason up to God or obey Him perfectly. Our salvation is found in Christ and being united to Him. All is finished. Atonement, forgiveness, justification, union. Nothing is added by us. It's all been done by Christ. And so this morning we can rest. <laughs> we can actually rest. We can have true rest because of what Christ has done. We can behold him, we can eat of him, we can drink of him. And I'll end this morning with this quote from John Calvin. Every good thing we could think of or desire is to be found in Christ alone. He was sold to buy us back, captive to deliver us, condemned to absolve us, made a curse for our blessing, a sin offering for our righteousness, marred that we might be made fair, suffered and died for our life. We do not deserve that, brothers and sisters. We don't. But he's given it to us in his mercy. So this morning, may we eat and drink of him. May we trust in Christ alone, not like the bread that perishes, but the bread that endures to eternal life. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for Christ, for sending him in the fullness of time to do what 
we are incapable of doing. We are incapable of fulfilling your perfect standard of righteousness, your perfect holiness. We could never, we could never attain. And our sin has separated us from you, but in the fullness of time, you sent your son to do all that we could not. All that the first Adam failed to do has come to completion in Christ. And so this morning, by faith in him, we're united to him. His death is our death. His life is our life. And so this morning, may we not just eat and drink of Christ once, but may every day our daily bread be the life and body of Christ. May we feed on him this morning with the eyes of faith. And we can do none of this without the power of your spirit opening our eyes, revealing us our need this morning, our need to to run from our sin, to repent, to turn from all the ways that we've forsaken you and to come and behold Christ this morning. May we do that with the eyes of faith, we pray. Amen. Amen. So as we come now to the time of the Lord's Supper, you know, we, we find here particular language that we find only really other than here in our Lord's institution of the Lord's Supper. This language of, this is my body broken for you. This is my blood shed for you. And so, because of that, there's been a lot of misunderstanding about this passage. And, and I'll just say a little bit about this. There's more that can be said, but, you know, many of you are familiar with the Roman Catholic view of the, of the Lord's Supper, as they call it, the Eucharist, the Roman Mass, where the priest lifts up the host and says, Hopus corpus meum, right? This is my body. And by his priestly authority, he believes that he is an altar Christus, another Christ, whereby he can re-sacrifice the body and blood of Christ, where, the, as Daryl said, the blood and the bread and wine is changed into the body, blood, soul, and divinity of Christ, and that he's rendered present on the Roman altar. And that by this, there's a really a re-sacrifice of Christ that's happening. And so we have to ask ourselves, is that, what, is that what we're doing? Is that what we're partaking of when we partake of the Lord's Supper? Because they get their language, they get their theology from John 6. Because <laughs> Jesus says, unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, he must mean what he says. You don't believe the Bible? That's what they'll say, right? And so as we come to John 6 and as we come to the Lord's table... We have to be very careful that there's nothing magical happening. There's no transubstantiation. There's no changing of the substance of the bread and the wine behind me into something that it's not. There's no magical thing happening here. There's no idolatry. There's no re-sacrificing. There's no adding. I mean, if you read this passage as if they read it, right? Unless you eat the flesh and the Son of Man and drink His blood. What they're really saying is unless you partake of the Roman Mass then you won't be saved. There's no life in you. And that's to add works to faith, and we don't like that around here, right? <laughs> so that's not what we're saying. So there's nothing magical happening. But we must be also careful to think that there's nothing happening when we come to the table, that there's nothing happening, that it's, as I call it, sort of just a mental sticky note, that we're just supposed to remember, and that's it. Our Lord's words here are not disconnected from what's happening 
at the Lord's Supper. They're not directly or literally, this isn't an institution of the Lord's Supper in John chapter 6, but it's not totally disconnected. Why do I say that? Because in the Lord's Supper, the believer's soul is fed, nourished, and assured by eating and drinking the bread and the wine. And that, as our confession says, that as surely as we eat and drink the bread and the wine by faith, so surely was his body and bread, or his body and blood shed for us. Or we can say it this way. This is a covenant sign, right? All the covenants in scripture have signs that accompany them. The rainbow in the sky for Noah, that was a sign. It was a covenant sign that God would not flood the earth. So the, the rainbow was meant to communicate something, to tell us something about the promise of God in the Noahic covenant. And so what these covenant signs are, they're teaching us about the covenant, the new covenant, about what God has done for believers. That as surely as we break the bread and we drink the wine, and when we do that by faith, meaning we're pointed to Christ, as surely as we're, our eyes are beholding Christ, we have salvation. <laughs> There's no doubt. And so this, this sign, this Lord's Supper, is meant to nourish and feed our souls. It's meant to assure us. It's meant to cause us to look to the one finished sacrifice of Christ. There's no re-sacrifice happening. There's no another re-sacrifice of him. There's no idolatry. This is beholding Christ with the eyes of faith. And that's why we call this a means of grace. It's not because of the virtue of these elements. It's not because of magical things. It's by the Spirit, the supernatural, working in our hearts to work faith in us and where Christ is present with us by faith and by the power of the Spirit. And so these means of grace are not meant to point us to the objects. We would make the same mistake that these people did in John chapter 6 if we just focused on these elements. The Roman Catholics, they worship they worship the bread and the wine because they think it's Christ. Our eyes are not meant to look at the physical bread and the physical wine. They're meant to be pointed to the finished work of Christ represented in the blood and the wine. So let's do that this morning. And so as we come to the table, we're reminded of what all that God has done. We're meant to feed on Christ. We're meant to look with the eyes of faith. And so this is a meal for believers. It's a meal for those that have trusted in Christ, that have faith. When faith isn't present, it means nothing. It's, it's just an empty sign. Faith must be present for there to be a true means of grace. And so as we come to the table, it's for believers. It's for those that have trusted in Christ, that have confessed their sin, have looked to him, have felt their guilt, and seen their need to feed and drink on him. And for those that haven't done that, right? For those that haven't professed their faith, who haven't been baptized, who haven't done that by, you know, membership in a local church, then this is not for you. It's not something that's just meant to be for anybody that we can do in our homes, that we can do whenever we want. It's, it's something that we do as a body. And as we partake of it, we're reminded of what Christ has done for his church. And so this morning we come eating, we come drinking, not physically, not literally, but with the eyes of faith. So let's pray this morning. Lord, as we come to the table, as we come to this Lord's Supper, we pray that especially this week as we've seen in this passage, 
And unless we eat and drink of you, we have no life. We have no hope in this world apart from you. And so as we come this morning, we pray that with the eyes of faith, we would behold the risen and resurrected Christ and that we would see that he is our only hope of salvation. We need help this morning to do this. And so you've, given, you've instituted this Lord's Supper for us, for our benefit. These visible words that show us the promises of the covenant. And so if our eyes, for, if our hearts forget, if our minds linger, Lord, we come to the supper and we remember that as surely as we eat the bread and drink the cup with the eyes of faith, so surely was Christ's body really broken and his blood really shed for sinners like us. May we trust in him alone this morning. May we come confessing all the ways that we've transgressed your law and are in great need of forgiveness. But may we come rejoicing. May we come not only sorrowfully, but rejoicing that you have done it all. We pray these things in your son's name. Amen. We'll just form a line in the center, take the elements back to your seat, and we'll partake of them together. take the bread, we remember and we believe. We have faith that Christ's body was broken for the forgiveness of all of our sins. In the same way we take the cup, this cup of the new covenant, this living drink representing the living blood of Christ that we're to take, we're to drink, we're to remember, and we're to believe that Christ's blood was spilled for the forgiveness of all of our sins. Amen. If you want to stand now, we'll respond this morning as we sing the great hymn. When I survey the wondrous cross. <clears throat>
Please sing with me hymn number 13, the doxology. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise Him, all creatures here below. Praise Him above, ye heavenly host. Praise Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. Amen. Receive this blessing from the book of Hebrews. Now may the God of peace, who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with everything good that you may do his will working in us that which is pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory 
forever and ever. Amen. The grace and peace of our Lord as you go today.